The book on the screen is something I'd like us all to read this summer. In the early 70s, Dr. J.I. Packer wrote this book, Knowing God. It's sold over a million copies. It's an absolute classic of Christian writing. And he might be the greatest living theologian. It's substantial, but it's easy reading. It was originally published as a series of magazine articles. So it's not only deep, it's also devotional. It's much more important to know God than it is to know things about God. If you go to seminary, there sometimes you'll meet students who are learning a great number of things about God, but it's far better to know God Himself. I grew up as a Dallas Cowboys fan, so I know an embarrassing thing about Troy Aikman, who was once upon a time their greatest quarterback. I know that he played football when he was in high school in Henrietta, Oklahoma. I know that he went to Oklahoma and there he broke his leg. Then I know he came out here to UCLA and led the Bruins. I know a lot about him. I've never met him. I never will. And the point of being in Christ is to have a personal knowledge of God. It is, that, it is for that that Jesus died. Jesus said that eternal life is knowing God and the one whom he sent. And books like this, though not obviously on a par with Scripture, can help you quickly learn from an older brother in the family of God a great deal about him. And it's intensely practical. It'll deal with questions like this. How do you keep from... How do you move the things that you were learning about God into knowing God himself? How do you keep the things that you're learning about God from making you cocky? Have you ever met a cocky Christian? Have you ever met someone who was proud of their spiritual knowledge? It's an absolute contradiction in terms. It's the dumbest thing in the world. It's the most contradictory, ironic, and hypocritical thing that anyone would know God and be consequently arrogant about it. So, what I hope you'll do is purchase this book. It's about 10 bucks on Amazon. Uh, if you receive my weekly email, there's already a handy Amazon link in there, and that over the summer, you'll improve your summer reading, okay? That we'll read this book together. I'd like this to be a cause of discussion. If it brings up questions as you read through it with me, I'm reading it again myself. Um, and yesterday, I as soon as I sent that email out, I got an immediate reply back from a young woman in our church who said, this is by far my favorite book. It was huge in my journey to Christ six years ago, and I'm really excited to read it again. She must have been because she added a smiley face at the end of the paragraph. So I really commend it to you. We've never done anything like this. We've read scripture together. We've never read a book together. Let's read this one together, shall we? Now then, to business. Are you aware that you are all theologians? Let's just go home, shall we? Did you hear the yo? Some people said yes, some people said no, the result was yo. Some of you will correctly say, I don't even, I'm not even entirely sure what that word means. I don't think I could possibly be one. Well, a theologian is one who thinks and speaks about God. That's all the word means. It's two words put together, the knowledge or the speech of God. 
In that sense, every human being is a theologian. You're continually having thoughts about God. You may call out to Him in prayer, hoping that He's there, not being sure if He is. You may think that He has abandoned you. You may think that He does not exist. It's entirely possible that somebody dragged you to church this morning, and you're here under false pretenses. You're here really just to please mom or just to please dad or to check a box off. People come to church for all kinds of reasons. So every single one of us, in a sense, is doing theology. We're having thoughts about God. You might be having thoughts about me as well. For instance, when will this be over? (laughs) I'd like to tell you that the disciples were adjusting their theology. They were in personal contact with God on earth. As promised in the scriptures that we're reading, up to a thousand years earlier, God had promised to send His own Son, having sent many prophets to speak faithfully about Him and to promise and to warn and even threaten people about the way people were dealing with God. God had promised more than to send a prophet. He had promised to send His own Son, and now that Son was on the earth. And the disciples were having a very, very hard time adjusting to what Jesus was telling them he was and what he was going to do. You see, they were what Martin Luther, about 500 years ago, called theologians of glory. A theologian of glory, his thoughts of God, his speech of God leads him to believe that everything will be success, that when he gets sick, he expects to be healed. If he wants to be married, he expects to be married and to a wonderful person, and from that person create as many beautiful children as the two of them agree, and that those children will be absolutely spectacular human beings, and what little trouble they have will be quickly and easily answered by this person's relationship with God. When a pastor is a theologian of glory, he expects the church always to grow, and he expects himself never to suffer. That's a theologian of glory. Does that sound distinctly American to you? That fits into our cultural blind spot like nothing else. Many people have come to God who is an actual person with their own agendas, with their own needs, and many times from the pulpit of the American church in particular, and we're exporting it everywhere, we give this message. If you come to God, you will experience glory here and now. You will have, as someone famously wrote, your best life now. I certainly hope not. There's so much suffering in the world. I hope that this is not the best life. Jesus knew that it wasn't. But Luther speaks of a different kind of theologian. He says there's not only a theology of glory, there is also what Jesus was actually trying to tell his disciples in Luke's gospel. There is a theology of the cross. And that's what Jesus has been explaining to the disciples as we continue to move through Luke's gospel. And this, most of all, is what they're having the hardest time with. Look with me quickly to Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verse 23, Jesus has told His disciples that He is going to suffer many things, that He's going to be rejected by the religious people of His day, of His culture, 
that in fact, according to verse 22, they're going to kill him, and only then will he rise on the third day as the Scriptures had promised. Verse 23, and he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Does this sound like a theology of the cross or a theology of glory to you so far? Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. If you want to follow me, take up your own cross in daily self-denial and let's go. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. In other words, glory for Jesus is not now, it will come later. There will be glory, but first there will be a cross. And the disciples, as I'm going to show you, cannot begin to conceive of this. Many world religions can't, and some people who call themselves Christians, and many who actually are Christians can't bear this word from Jesus because it turns the world upside down. I don't know about you, I'm in no particular hurry to lose my life. Are you? I love my life. Don't you? Not mine, yours. <laughs> so I have no idea whether I love your life, Bruce. I only see you for a brief time on the weekend. Life is precious. So as Jesus is saying here, if you want to come after me, you're going to have to daily pick up your cross. You'll have to deny yourself, pick up your own cross every day, and then come after me. This isn't a popular word. And then he says, and this bridges into today's story, but I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What in the world does that mean? The next story tells us. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James. Jesus has 12 disciples. These are three at the core. Of the 12 disciples he has, these are closest to him. And as the church of Jesus begins to expand and the gospel is preached, these three men will be the tip of the spear. About, after, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. In Greek, that literally says, as bright as a flash of lightning. You ever have lightning blind you momentarily? One time, and I'll never forget it, I was driving across Arizona in a thunderstorm, and I could barely stay on the road because I was so mesmerized watching the flashes. Amazing. Jesus has taken these three up on a mountaintop. He's praying. As you're about to find out, they're not praying. They're on their way to sleeping. And as he prays, he is transfigured before them. The appearance of his face was altered. We're not told how, but we can imagine that it was glorious because his clothing became as bright as a flash of lightning. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. 
Now, if secular culture has convinced you that there is nothing beyond this life and you and I are just sort of super animated monkeys controlled by electricity and chemicals, you already don't have much room for this because this is speaking of something supernatural in the world. What's happening here? God who made the world is breaking into it in a visible way and he is showing something about his son that the disciples themselves are not prepared for. They're seeing the Jesus of glory. They're seeing him in some sense as he was before he was born among them. And he's not alone. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Well, who in the world is that? Moses is the great liberator of Israel. He has introduced them to the worship and the knowledge of God by giving them the law, the most famous part of which is known to us as the Ten Commandments. This is who God is, and this is how He wants His creation to live. Moses did that. Who's Elijah? Elijah is the greatest of their prophets. When the nation was right on the brink of walking away from God, Elijah came and did things that only God can do and sealed his ministry by going straight up to God in glory without tasting death. So Jesus is standing with two of the greatest men of Israel's history. Together they represent the law and the prophets. In other words, they represent the Word of God, what the disciples have read, what Jesus himself has memorized, what Jesus explains Sabbath by Sabbath in the synagogue he attended faithfully. Every weekend, the law and the prophets are speaking with him. Verse 31 says, they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which, was, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. What are they talking about then? You understand what, they're, what you're being told here by Luke? Moses and Elijah are talking to Jesus, and what are they talking about? His death, his cross. If you want to make a note of it in your Bible, if your Bible doesn't have it as a footnote, mine does. The word departure is the Greek word exodus. Luke wrote down they were speaking of his exodus. See the Moses connection? Jesus will soon depart from this earth, and there's a meaning there, I'm sure. That's why the word was chosen. As Moses led Israel out of bondage, Jesus is going to lead many more out of bondage to sin. And they're talking about this. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus standing with him in glory with his clothing looking like a flash of lightning. I cannot begin to imagine what the Lord's face looked like. They're standing there speaking of this in the most natural way. And Peter loses his mind. <laughs> now Peter and those who were with them were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, can you visualize that? What a wake up. What a way to come around out of that half drowsy, half in, half out sleepiness. Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And Luke says, not knowing what he said. You thought I was being mean. I'm not. I'm just repeating to you in my own language what the Bible's telling you. 
What's going on here? Well, when Israel had come out of Egypt, they were given in the law a commandment that on the seventh month for seven days they were to live outside in tents, in tabernacles, in booths, to remember from where God had rescued them. And Peter says, let's do that. It's great that we're here. We'll make a tent for each one of you. What's he saying more than anything? Let's stay up here. This is wonderful. Because that is what a theology of glory invites you to do. To receive from God, to see his glory, to have his knowledge, to see things that you did not see before, to understand things from him through spiritual experience that were previously completely unknown to you, and to enjoy it so much that you simply want to stay. Peter is also making a terrible mistake which is immediately corrected. Verse 34, as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. This is so Jewish, we have to look backward into their history to understand what's happening. Fire and cloud was how God led Israel through the wilderness. Remember that? Now the cloud is descending. And having read these stories as ancient divine history of something that God did long ago and far away, they understand, as you and I cannot begin to imagine, what is happening. And it terrifies them. And a voice came out of the cloud saying... Read this with me. It'll be on the screen so we can all read the same thing. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who's speaking? God is. As God spoke at the baptism of Jesus, now God is speaking about Jesus just before his cross. What is he being told? What are they being told? This is my son. My chosen one. Here's what you are to do. You are to listen to him. See, that's why the three tense idea is such a non-starter. It puts them all on the same level. It seeks to enjoy them equally and treat them equally. The voice from the cloud, the voice of God himself says, this is not another lawgiver. This is not a prophet. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Jesus has just been asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they've given him all the theories. And Peter cut through and understood it and said, you're the Messiah. You're the one that God has chosen. You're the one that God has sent. Not knowing how right he was, now Peter is hearing an affirmation from heaven. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And this old story, long ago and far away from us, 2,000 years ago, which we have to struggle to believe because of the incessant voice in our culture that says that matter and human reason is all there is, and when you're dead, you're dead, and that's all there ever could be, ever was, and ever will be, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to take this seriously, this simple personal knowledge that Jesus does not stand as one among many. If our current culture gives any credence, any room at all to spiritual religious thinking, it is only this. Let's make a hall of heroes 
And anyone who's ever claimed to have any spiritual insight at all, whether it involves sitting and staring at a tree, or speaking for God, or claiming to be God, whatever the spiritual thinking is, let's welcome them all and create a hall of spiritual heroes, and we will choose among them and listen to them as it suits us, or not at all. God speaks from heaven and says something entirely different, something revolutionary, radical, and narrow. This is my son, my chosen one. Here, you simple disciples, are what you are supposed to do. You are to do what? Listen to him. That's why we're pleading with you always to not forsake your Bible. To become an expert not in the Scriptures so much as an expert in the knowledge of God. Not about him, but knowledge of him. You know how much better it is to know a person than to know something about them? My knowledge about my wife does me no good whatsoever if I cannot know and love her. This is the closeness, the nearness, the humility, the love, the sacrifice of God. How much does God desire to be known that He sent His Son to live among us, to be tempted as we are but without sin, to speak faithfully of this life that He made, and then to die in our place so that we could enjoy Him forever? What is the only reasonable response to that? To listen to God, believe that Jesus is His Son, His chosen one, and listen to Him daily as He speaks to us through Scripture, and we have the privilege of talking back to Him in prayer. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. I mean, can you, are you visualizing this? Spielberg would have his hands full recreating this scene. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but what's it say? Couldn't do it. very different from the mountaintop, isn't it? Jesus and the three disciples have enjoyed together literally a heavenly experience. They've never seen him like this. They now know something about him that they did not know before going up the mountain. In other gospels, Jesus forbids them from telling anyone, and perhaps they didn't want to, not before he dies, because they're so dumbstruck and awestruck by what they've seen and heard, they can't speak at all. And they come back down into the valley, they come down off the mountain, and it's right back to real life. Do you ever feel like that when you're coming home from vacation? And you're at the hotel, and for once in your life, every single thing is clean? And if you make a mess, somebody else, unknown, almost invisible, will come in and take care of it. And it's just great. And maybe you've traded your junky old car for a rental. And food is being prepared for you, and the kids are behaving for once, and it's just great. Kids feel like that on summer vacation. And then real life interrupts. 
Peter, James, and John are coming down off the mountain, perhaps with their own faces shining, and certainly their minds and their hearts brimming with what they've seen and known, even though they can't talk about it. And at the foot of the mountain, there's a large, screaming crowd with a man in the worst kind of trouble that I think any parent could be in. He has a boy. He's not sick. He's possessed. It takes him, and look at the descriptive language, it shatters him. It leaves him unrecognizable. And wherever Jesus was, and the crowd doesn't know, this man has been pleading with the men who follow Jesus to do something about it, and it seems that they have tried, and what have they come up with? Nothing. Look at Jesus' response. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? How does he sound to you? Frustrated. Weary. Why? Because in this same chapter, he's given them authority over disease and demons and sent them out, and they've come back utterly successful. What's happened here? It seems that they've encountered something that they've never seen before, and they've run into something that they apparently believe is not only too big for them, it's too big for Jesus. Because with his authority and under his instructions, they've met things like this before and apparently had great success, but not today. They've tried and they could not. And you can hear the weariness in the Lord's voice. Now, these stories are told together for a reason. Every time this story in the Gospels is told, these two stories follow each other immediately. You're taken to the mountain to see a man who resembles a flash of lightning. To hear God use every sense at the, at the disciples' disposal to remind them that it's really him and then point to Jesus and say, this is my son. This is the one I've chosen. He's not like Moses. He's not like Elijah. You should listen to him. And as Jesus will tell the disciples later at the very end of Luke's gospel, Jesus can open up the scriptures and speak of Moses and Elijah and also the Psalms and say, all of these scriptures speak about me. So what has their failure been? They have not listened to Jesus. Because he is not with them, they think he has forsaken them and the power he has given them has gone with him and they are powerless to help this desperate man. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. And that's a show of power. That's all that is. Light and darkness are clashing. Real personalities unseen to the human eye, in other words, a demonic being and the Son of God who made all that is in the world are meeting face to face, and this is a last desperate attempt of power and to induce fear. It slams this poor boy down and convulses him, but look at the authority of God in the flesh. Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy, and I love this phrase. What does he do? He gave him back to his father. You ever had the privilege of doing something like that? Where you reunite a frightened child and a frightened parent? I've done it a couple times. Where kids have been lost. 
And I see the kid screaming and looking around in desperation. So I hold on to him and do what I can, add my little efforts to the kids to get somebody's attention. And finally, dad shows up or mom shows up. And you know that that's mom or dad because the kid is a washing relief and runs to them. And they look back at you and say, thank you. And you say, I've been there. It's just my turn to be the reuniter rather than the desperate parent. Jesus brings these two back together. What's the crowd's reaction? Verse 43, all were astonished at the majesty of God. The crowd and the disciples understand what's happening here. This is no mere exorcist. This is not a religious or a spiritual expert. This is not a magician or a conjurer. They know they are seeing the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. Boy, he's working hard to get our attention, isn't he? What a phrase. I'm going to say something now. Let it sink in. Pay attention. Don't miss this. This is in Scripture because this is what Jesus is saying to us. Please understand, when you come here or any church that teaches the Scriptures faithfully, What you're trying to do is simultaneously put one foot in the first century if we're talking about the life of Jesus and then with the help of God and whoever else is explaining the Bible to you, step forward into your own life. We're never studying about long ago and far away for its own sake. We want to hear Jesus for ourselves because Scripture tells us He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's still the Son of God. He is still the chosen one. He is still worth listening to. He's the only one that, we, that can save us if we actually listen to Him. And Jesus says to the disciples then, and because He wrote it down, to the disciples now, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, it's another messianic title from the book of Daniel. It simultaneously tells you that Jesus is God and man. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. What a phrase. You see what he's telling you? I'm a real human being. I have been among you, but I'm not only a human being. I am the chosen one of God. I am the one that Daniel spoke of 700 years ago. I'm the one Isaiah looked forward to. I'm the one that David spoke of in the Psalms. I am the Son of Man, and I am going to be delivered into the hands of ordinary people. I was struck by Don's phrase, we fell into the hands of a corrupt policeman. Very descriptive, isn't it? Been there a few times when we were serving in Mexico ourselves. The phrase is well chosen because to be in the hands of someone means you are in their control, you're under their power. Jesus is saying something astonishing here. The Son of Man is going to be delivered. Delivered by whom? By God. Delivered by his own will, delivered by his own determination to love, he is going to be handed over or delivered into the hands of men. What's he talking about? His cross. He's talking about his exodus. He's talking about his death that is soon coming in Jerusalem. And here's where Luke leaves the story. But they did not understand this saying, and it was concealed from them so that they might not perceive it going on here. Bible scholars have actually 
argued with each other about what is meant by this phrase, it was concealed from them that they might not perceive it. They didn't understand, and not only that, it was hidden from them. Hidden by who? That's the question. Is it God or the devil? That's the scholarly argument. May I submit to you a very simple solution? Whatever the case may be, they do not understand because they do not listen to Jesus. They don't understand because they don't want to understand. Why? Because he's calling them to a theology of the cross. He's telling them, you're my disciples. And you've harbored all these thoughts and hopes that I'm going to make everything better for you immediately. And I'm telling you that I will make everything infinitely better someday, but first I am headed to Jerusalem to die. I'm going to be delivered into the hands of men. And I know it's their responsibility. We always try to read the Bible in context. Context is king. I know that this hiddenness, this lack of understanding is their fault, their responsibility because of what it says next. They were afraid to ask him about this saying. They've got Jesus right there speaking about the rest of his life and the rest of theirs, and they're afraid to ask him. May I close by asking you, have you ever been afraid to ask Jesus anything? If you don't mind, could I use Don and Margie Cook as an example? They were living somewhere pretty sweet. Do you remember where they told you they were living? They were living in Hawaii. And they had their family. I assume if they've managed to have their family and a residence in Hawaii, I assume things are rather settled. None of my business, but it sounds pretty good to me. Sounds like something maybe you plan for, right? Most people don't just end up in retirement in Hawaii. It doesn't just happen. You have to think about it. You have to work at it. And then they heard Jesus saying something entirely different. Moved to Southeast India to work among the poorest people on earth in one of the most difficult climates on earth and work for people and serve people in the name of Jesus who cannot possibly repay you. Say what now? <laughs> See, a theologian of glory wants to stay on the mountaintop. Now let me close by giving you a warning. If you think that God has given you knowledge of Him so that you can enjoy yourself and make your life about you, you're a theologian of glory and you'll miss Jesus and His whole purpose forever. It's not Jesus' life coach. It's not I get to live my life and go to heaven later. That's really what a lot of Christianity has been reduced to. I get to live my life the way I want, knowing that if the worst possible thing that could ever happen to me actually does happen to me someday and I die, it's okay because I'm going to heaven. So in the meantime, I just do whatever I please, and this is awesome. I have Jesus to bless my plans and the prospect of heaven someday. What did Jesus say instead? You want to come with me? I'm headed to Jerusalem. Pick up your own cross, having denied yourself, and let's go. What will he take these men into? This is not the day, but someday they will understand it. 
and Jesus risen from the dead will finally be able to convince him that every word he said is true and every sacrifice is worth it. And these three will die for him. They will literally lose their life for his sake and in doing so gain everything. Now, does that mean you have to be a missionary? Well, maybe. Don't be too quick to, don't be too quick to discount that. I can tell you as the son of missionaries and a former missionary myself, all God has to deal with when he call, starts calling missionaries is normal people, just ordinary people. Maybe he will. But what it looks like much for many more of us is to wake up every day in the morning knowing that you have been saved by the Son of God, that he somehow loved your life more than his own, and he has spoken to you in his word, which you have the privilege, like very few people in human history have, of picking up a copy of his word, written not only in your language, but written in as many translations as your smartphone or iPad can bear to handle. Dozens. So that you may hear the voice of God. And God will show you through His Word and through prayer and through His body, which is the local church, and through your daily walk with Him, glorious things. And it won't happen every day, but sometimes you've been there, sometimes in church, sometimes in private, but you have seen the glory of God and things have finally made sense to you and lights have come on and life has come into sharp focus. Do you know what I'm talking about? And God will take you up on the mountaintop, but let me tell you something about the mountaintop. What God shows you on the mountaintop is needed down in the valley. God doesn't, God doesn't give you knowledge of himself for its own sake and for you alone. What Jesus has shown these disciples and all disciples in those mountaintop experiences where you think to yourself, I am so blessed, I am so happy, I am safe, I have an actual knowledge of God. I don't have to wonder about life anymore. God has answered the big questions of life, not every detail, but he has answered the big questions in life, and I no longer need to fear death. And I know what my marriage represents, and I know what my singleness represents, and I know how I am to behave as a father, as a mother, as a child, in obedience to Jesus. And those mountaintop experiences, what you are learning from God is needed down in the valley of what everybody else calls real life. So my prayer for you is that you will go up to the mountain and hear from God and hear the Father say of His Son, this is my Son, my chosen one, listen to Him, but that you wouldn't stay on the mountain. That you would look across your family, your circle of friends, your influence in this torn, tattered, troubled nation. And that you would take the knowledge of God in self-sacrificial love and be the kind of person that Jesus needs down in the valley so that He would never say of you, why are you faithless? Why are you twisted? Why, how much longer do I have to put up with your unbelief? Folks, understand the love that is there. He has extended himself to the uttermost, literally to death, so that you would have a certain knowledge of him. 
so that you would know how dearly loved you are, how beloved you are in His family, how good and glorious He is, how powerful He is, that one day He will make everything right. And in the meantime, what He has shown you is needed. Do you know where? Can you identify the valley? It'll be different for each of you because it's a personal relationship with Jesus. I can think of a few valleys where I personally am needed. I'm needed in my marriage and I'm needed in my parenthood. Those are real valleys. My greatest privilege and first responsibility is to present myself and Jesus to my wife and my sons. I'm needed. For me, it's easy. I'm needed in the valley-like experience of the Ziff Church family. That's me. What about you? Some of you are so afraid of following Jesus down into the valley. And in simple belief and simple listening to Him, do what He wants you to do. That's why you hold on to most of your money. That's why you don't speak of Him when He presents clear opportunities to broach the subject and maybe risk the danger of your friends and family pulling back. That's why some of you, men, if I could speak to fathers for a moment, some of you are passive and more than happy to let your wife lead the way rather than endeavoring in the name of Jesus to catch up, get one simple step ahead of your wife and kids so that you can say, I'm not sure exactly where this goes, but I see Jesus come with me. It's hard. It's so much easier to create a theology of glory. It's so much easier even being shown the glory of God up on the mountaintop to say, this is awesome, let's stay. Would you pray for our students this year? Every year at Hume, they literally go up on the mountain and we talk about the Hume High. They go to Hume Lake Christian Camp. They have these high mountaintop experiences and we pray and we wait for them to settle down into the valley because it's only in the valley that the mountaintop lessons are actually lived out. About half a dozen guests have told me about our church in the last three or four weeks. We love your church because it's so loving. You know who does that? You do that. Certainly not me. I'm just one guy. I'm the guy with this crazy Britney Spears mic. There's no possible way I can do much to personally relate and love, to pe love people from this vantage point. But you do. That's what it looks like for a church family to get down into real life. For someone who drags themselves into church feeling they won't belong and they will be rejected to know that they instead they are loved. Why are they loved? Because we were loved. We love Him because He first loved us. We love others because He first loved us. So let's go to the mountain. Let's listen to Jesus. But most of all, let's go down into the valley where He's actually needed. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, would you make this time count now? It's decision time for some. Some need to trust you as Savior this morning. Others are already following you. They're already disciples. But they, Lord, 
They need to follow you into what you're asking them to do next. They need to come beside those who are shrieking in pain, victimized by sin, and they need to conquer their fears and be self-controlled with your power and bring your love and your person to bear in that situation that people may be saved and healed and restored. Could I ask you, have you trusted this Jesus as Savior? If you haven't, can I invite you to turn away from your sin and to trust Jesus? He's not like Elijah. He's not like Moses. He's not like Buddha or Muhammad. He's not like anyone who's ever claimed to speak or actually spoken for God. He's nothing like them. He's utterly different. He is God's own son. We are to listen to him. Have you? Have you trusted him with your soul? Have you given him your sin and asked him to be the boss and savior of your life? If you haven't, this is my invitation to do so and to let us know by using that card in your bulletin. If you have questions, if you're on the edge of that, I'd love to talk to you about that personally. I've talked to people sometimes for a year before they finally trust Jesus. Please understand, I'm not talking about trusting me. I'm not talking to you about trusting this church. I'm talking to you about trusting Jesus, the only one who will never disappoint your trust. If today is your day, or today is the day you step forward at least to ask a question, to express your doubts, call out to Jesus right now and ask him to come to you and save you. Tell him you're sorry for your sin. Tell him you're putting him in charge. And I'd love for you to let us know as well. And Christian, he did more than, he had more in mind than us gathering on the weekend and doing whatever he pleased. What he had in mind was to make a family, a band of disciples, who would live day by day by day in loving obedience to him and that he would make the difference whatever valley he sent you into. If you can't identify the valley, ask him. He knows where you're needed. Ask him. Five years from now, you may be on the other side of the world or you might be exactly where you are now, but an entirely different person because you're listening to Jesus and doing what he says. Father, receive these decisions, these commitments, these questions, whatever we bring to you. I pray that it would be welcome and acceptable in the name of Jesus. And along with our trust, Lord, as an expression of trust, we give you these offerings. Thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.